Well, thank you, uh, Josiah. And just want to add my welcome uh, this morning to Christ the King. Uh, whether you've come from near or far, it's great to have you here. I want to begin by calling your attention to a book that was published in 2014 by Oxford University Press. And it was looking at the fastest growing religious demographic in the Western world. And that group was not Muslims or Sikhs. It was those who described themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And in terms of what it means to be a spiritual person, uh, the author of this book, uh, Linda Mercadante, lays out four things that this group has in common. The first is a belief in some kind of larger reality, something greater than the individual. The second is a desire to connect with something greater, with this larger force. Uh, the third is the promotion of rituals and practices to aid to that connection. And lastly, the expectation of particular behaviors that foster or demonstrate that desired connection. But beyond those four very basic things, the author argues that the spectrum of available spiritual definitions is almost infinitely wide. It could be a spiritual identity from commitment to a particular religion or a combination of religions or something that's been developed for yourself. What matters most is that that spirituality is authentic and true to you. It resonates with your experience. Now, when we ask this question, what does it mean to be spiritual in a Christian context, we might expect the answer to be more precise, that it's not going to be so wide a number of options. And yet I find when we ask maybe a more Christian version of that question, maybe not what does it mean to be spiritual, but what does it mean to be a Christian or what does it mean to be a good Christian or on good footing with God? I find actually the spectrum of answers we get can sometimes be almost equally as wide. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, some might say it means to be baptized. It means to be raised in a certain Christian family. It means to, um, to have a certain doctrinal belief about what God is like. Some people might give those, those definitions in terms of what it means to be a good Christian. Someone who's close to God, people might say, well, that means you're going to church regularly. It means that you're reading your Bible regularly. Uh, what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, you, you feel God's presence with you. It means that you hear from him regularly when you pray. It means that you share your faith very regularly. It means that you've actually led some people to become Christians. It means that you post on social media the, the causes that you should support as a Christian. Anyhow, there can be such a broad number of answers as to what does it mean to be spiritual in the Christian sense. But actually, for the individual Christian, experience can be quite bewildering. It can, it can be hard to have a sense of what is the core of what makes us who we are as followers of Jesus. And this can particularly be the case when we go through a season of trial or dryness or just in general difficulty and all of those well, at least a number of those things that make a good Christian, we can feel maybe no longer apply to us. So what does it actually mean to be spiritual? That is the question that hangs over the passage we'll be looking at this morning. John chapter three, one of the central passages of the entire Bible, one of the most important, the most crux-like passages on which the Old and New Testament hinge, Jesus's conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And I'm going to argue that this passage falls into three parts that we see on the one hand, an unexpected assessment, then we see an unparalleled authority, and lastly, an unprecedented invitation. So uh, 
unexpected assessment and unparalleled authority and an unprecedented invitation. So just for some context of this passage, um, this is towards the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He's begun to do miracles and signs, and that has begun to win him some followers and some enemies. And that's included among the class of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were some of the Jewish religious teachers of the day. And we're told here that one of them named Nicodemus pays a visit to Jesus. And here is what the text says. If you have a Bible, I do invite you to open to John chapter three. And I'm just gonna walk us through the passage starting at verse one. We're told, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this means that Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee, wasn't just a religious leader with a religious education, but was actually a member of the select committee known as the Sanhedrin. And this is a group that maybe was as small as just 71 uh, particular leaders in Israel, but they were the highest religious authority in the land. So this Nicodemus is, you know, in terms of what it means to be spiritual, this guy's a big deal. And we're told in verse two, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, much has been wondered about what that means. It could be that because some Pharisees had already positioned themselves against Jesus, that Nicodemus was doing this secretly. Um, that's certainly possible. Uh, but at the same time, we have a sense throughout John's gospel that John takes note that night, often in Jesus's teaching, is a symbol of spiritual darkness. We notice that John calls attention to things being at night when there is symbolic meaning behind that. For instance, when Judas leaves uh, the Last Supper to go out and betray Jesus, John explains this in terms of Judas immediately went out and it was night. Uh, we see even in Jesus's teaching, he says things like, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So it may, it was certainly nighttime when this happened and maybe he had secretive reasons to come to see Jesus at this time. But it seems that John is wanting to point out that though Nicodemus was not aware of it, he was in spiritual darkness. And this right away should give us pause as we come to this passage, whether we're Christians or not, what, Nicodemus, what Jesus is trying to draw out for us is that it is possible to think that you are spiritually in the light when you in reality are not. It is no excuse for us to breeze over this passage and say, well, I know this one quite well already. In fact, this beginning gets us thinking, am I really walking in the light? Am I truly a spiritual person? And to get the answer to that, we need to listen closely to what Jesus has to say. So uh, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, and here we see, well, this is quite a respectful way for Nicodemus to address Jesus. After all, Jesus did not have the religious education that most rabbis would have. But then we see this respect kind of decay into something that seems a bit patronizing. At least that's the sense of what commentators make of this in the original language. Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Uh, there's a sense that this would have come across in terms of, you know, Nicodemus maybe seeing this as quite a gift he's giving to Jesus. Here's the highest religious authority of the land um, and wanting to let Jesus know, hey, we, you know, we've, we've heard of you and we want to affirm that, um, that God he seems to be up to something with you, young man. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the attitude that comes across here in the text. Um, What's interesting about this is that what hangs over this introduction is this question that Nicodemus isn't asking, but 
is implied, which is, who are you, Jesus? And what we find in what follows is that Jesus doesn't quite give him a direct answer. Um, in fact, this can tell us something about when we come to the Christian faith from the outside, we often begin by asking questions about Jesus, like Nicodemus, but we find often that as we look closely, we find Jesus begins to ask questions of us. And that is what Jesus, in fact, does here in the text. We get to verse three, Jesus answers Nicodemus and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is the crux verse. This, I think, is what the rest of the passage is going to explain. What does it mean to be spiritual? Jesus says, one must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And in a sense, this does follow what Nicodemus has said, because Jesus speaks of seeing the kingdom of God. Remember, Nicodemus had said, you know, we have seen some things about you, Jesus. And Jesus is, in effect, saying, actually, you have not seen spiritual reality unless you have gone through this experience of being born again. And Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, which was not a phrase that was present in the Old Testament as it, you know, in that language, but it's something Nicodemus should have been aware of. All throughout the prophetic books of the Old Testament, there was talk of a descendant of David who would be a king, who would be this Messiah, who would rule. And that rule in effect would be God's rule. It would be God's reign. It would be a kingdom of sorts. Nicodemus would have understood this as happening at the end of time. Jesus, in effect, is saying, Nicodemus, you're talking about seeing me. But in fact, if you were truly seeing spiritual reality, you would see that the end times have, in fact, come and that the reign of God in itself is evident through me. But to see this, Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, here we come to this phrase that's used all over Christianity, <laughs> but often without much meaning. What does it actually mean to be born again? This is what it means to be spiritual. What does this actually mean for Jesus? Well, at the very least here, we get a start at something of a definition, because this phrase, born again, actually in the original language would have had two meanings. It can mean to be born again, but it can also mean to be born from above. The phrasing is the same. And they give us different nuances as to what this experience of being born again means. Just to be said, to say to be born again, well, this must involve a kind of regeneration, a kind of break with the current self and a creation of a new one. To be born again is not something that one can do yourself. You don't usually have a role in being born, um, but it is something that happens to you. And like all births, this would be a birth that has a future that lies ahead of it. To be born from above, on the other hand, involves not just being born by something that you didn't do, but by something that God has done. The experience of being born again is something that only God can do. And we see Nicodemus's somewhat scornful reaction to this because of the question he asks in verse four. He says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus, instead of changing the metaphor, doubles down on it, <laughs> but he gives us a bit more of an explanation of what he means. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here we notice there've been a couple substitutions here. Instead of seeing the kingdom, Jesus has said, enter the kingdom. 
In a sense, what Jesus is saying that actually is that to see the kingdom of God, to perceive spiritual reality as it is fulfilled in Jesus is in fact to enter it. And likewise, to be born again isn't just this kind of regeneration that God must do. It is a being born again of water and spirit. Now, this phrase being born again or born of water and spirit, again, does not have an exact history in the Old Testament, but Nicodemus surely would have thought about another place in the Bible in the Old Testament where water and spirit are mentioned closely together. And this would be Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. And I'm just going to read these verses to you. This was a prophecy that God made through Ezekiel in terms of the end times for the people of Israel. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see here first the idea of being born of water. Well, that has to do with being sprinkled clean, having moral impurity, pursuit of idolatry, of living for things that aren't God. That's something that being born of water removes. Being born of water removes, is, is essentially forgiveness. To be born of the spirit involves God actually placing his spirit inside each one of us. And with the spirit comes a new heart, a heart that actually loves God and that has a new power and desire to live for him. But this notion of being born again in light of Ezekiel would have also brought to mind the chapter immediately following this mention of water and spirit, which is the famous passage in the book of Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel has this vision where God brings him to a valley full of dry, dusty bones. And God asks Ezekiel to prophesy over them. And he does. And as he does so, the bones join together, flesh grows over the bones, and then God's, God breathes breath. And these creatures, these bodies become alive once again. In a sense, what this means, and Nicodemus must have put the pieces together of where Jesus was going, is that to be born again, in fact, is such a radical transformation in the individual that it is akin to going from dry, dustly, totally lifeless bones to actually alive, functioning, living people. That is the degree of transformation Jesus says is required to even see the kingdom of God and then to see it and thereby to enter it. And as we go on to verse six, we see that Jesus again affirms this is something only God can do. And we saw that even in Ezekiel, because we see over and over God saying, I will give a spirit, I will sprinkle water, and so on. Verse 6 tells us in John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So here we see the first point in verse six, Jesus is saying, like begets like. It's not appropriate for Nicodemus to think that this being born again would be a physical rebirth, because if what in reality is needed is a spiritual transformation, that must come from a spiritual source, and only spirit can beget spirits. And then we come to verse eight, this stuff about the wind. And we have to bear in mind that this is the days of pre-meteorology. Um, 
people knew even less about the wind than we know now. They didn't know it went from you know, high pressure to low pressure, so on and so forth. Instead, the wind was just this reality that you could feel, but you didn't know where it came from. And so Jesus is in a sense saying, look, this rebirth is something that God alone can do. And you don't understand it, but it is something that you can experience because that is how the wind works. So the overwhelming implication is that this is something that only God can bring about. And just to pause for a moment, this is so different from other notions of reincarnation or rebirth in other religions. In Hinduism, for instance, you have complete control over what your next spiritual life is going to be like. Um, that is not something that's left in the hand of God. The life that you live now will control your future life. That's, that's within your prerogative. Uh, but here, Jesus is absolutely clear that this rebirth is something that only God can do. So I've called this section the unexpected assessment. And that is because we must put ourselves in Nicodemus's shoes to feel how offensive and utterly unacceptable this would have seemed to him. Because here you have Jesus telling Nicodemus the most prestigious type of religious person of his day, that all of his religious study, his reading of God's word, his prayer and fasting, his teaching about God of other people, including his desire for people to become followers of the God of the Jews, even though they were not. All of these things Nicodemus would have surely done. But in fact, by Jesus saying that he must be born again, in effect, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you must start all over. None of that counts for everything. That's not what it means to be a spiritual person. And instead, Jesus says, you can only be born again if God does this work of transformation in your heart, if he cleanses you, if he forgives you, and if he gives you a new spirit and heart inside you. Again, I said this phrase, being born again, was not in the Hebrew scriptures, but there very much was this idea that, to be, that, that Israel was the son of God, and that the Israelites, the Jews, were all children of God. And yet here again, Nicodemus is is very much challenged as Jesus is saying, actually, being a child of God is, is not something that is inherited by nature of your ethnic belonging to the Jews. And in fact, the Jews also believed the Mishnah collection of rabbinic teachings said that in terms of those who will enter the kingdom on the last day, well, that will be actually all Jews, apart from maybe the worst apostates. And yet, once again, Jesus is challenging that in, in effect and saying, even someone like Nicodemus, the most spiritual type person of his day, that even that kind of person will not enter God's kingdom unless he has been born again by God. This would have been offensive and narrow to Nicodemus. And I want us to feel the narrowness of it today for us and our modern society. Because Jesus here isn't teaching some kind of generic spiritual rebirth that needs to take place. In fact, it is very specific. This is a kind of rebirth that only Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible, can actually bring about. And this God of the Hebrew Bible needs to offer forgiveness to you if ever you are going to perceive spiritual reality, if ever you are going to enter into an actual spiritual union with him. And this just raises the question of why would anyone believe this, especially today? Of all the spiritual options out there and of all the people who are going the route of spiritual but not religious, why on earth would you choose something that comes across as so narrow as this? You know, there are those who enter the kingdom of God by being forgiven by Yahweh, and there are those who are not, and there is no in-between. Why would you choose to believe this is true? 
Um, we can get the sense that Nicodemus has trouble with this because in the next verse, verse nine, he asks, how can these things be? But in effect, what Jesus will go on to argue in this passage is that the reason why you can believe, you should believe these things is because they are in fact true. To claim that something's true immediately raises the question of on what authority are you believing that? And for some people today, their authority is science, or maybe it's personal lived experience, or maybe it's what the leading academics at the top universities say. Um, but we're also aware that some authorities can be better than others. I've been told uh, Wikipedia is not a great source for doctoral dissertation research. Uh, and in effect, what we find in this next section is that Jesus offers an unparalleled basis of authority on which he grounds these exclusive, unexpected assessments about what it means to be a spiritual person. So turning on to this unparalleled authority, the first source of this authority is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and yet you do not understand these things? This is a rebuke that Jesus is making of Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you should have been aware that what these things I'm saying are true because they are found in the very scripture that you study day and night. And you know, this is significant because there are other religions that talk about how their beliefs fulfill earlier religious scriptures. You could think of Mormonism or Islam, both of which identify themselves as in some sense being predicted from the earlier Hebrew scriptures. And yet it's interesting that neither Mormons nor Muslims will look at the Greek, the, you know, the Christian New Testament or the Hebrew Bible as equally authoritative with the Book of Mormon or with the Quran. Um, in fact, they'll see them as corrupted of sorts. The Christian faith is the only religion that I know of that so affirms that there is utter continuity between what God has done across space and time that we fully raise up the Old Testament as equally authoritative with the male. And there is something of authority that comes with this. Jesus is not just some guy who just walked down the streets of Toronto and suddenly said that he was God and this is the way spiritual reality is. No, in fact, there's this steady story, steady threads that go all throughout thousands of years of history that all point to Jesus. This is not just some guy off the block and there is some authority that comes with that. And Jesus affirms this authority in verse 11 when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And here in verse 12, we come to a little puzzling detail. Jesus says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And here it seems by the earthly things, Jesus is referring to this need to be born again. Perhaps Jesus sensed that Nicodemus was wanting to ask more esoteric questions about the nature of the kingdom or the end times. Those were common questions Pharisees were interested in. But Jesus, in effect, says, actually, it's no use talking about anything further. It's no use talking about any other kind of spirituality unless you have this down first and foremost. What does it mean? What's at the crux of being a spiritual person? So this first source of authority is this fulfillment in the scriptures. The second source of authority that Jesus affirms is his descent from heaven. We see this in verse 13. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Um, what is helpful to think about here is in this context, there were a number of rabbinic writings that claimed that a number of the authoritative prophets in the Old Testament had actually ascended into heaven and then come down and that's how they got there. 
their knowledge of scripture or their, you know, the laws that they had. And this would be particularly attributed to Moses. And Moses maybe in the actual biblical accounts comes closest to this, right? He goes up on Mount Sinai and he does have an encounter with God and returns to the people with the, the laws. Uh, but of course, what Jesus says here actually is affirming what, you know, what the Old Testament does say, which is that no one actually has ascended to heaven and then returned to bring a message. That was something that was claimed as a source of authority. But then Jesus here says something interesting that we might miss in this translation. Um, and so I think another way we can read this, which is helpful, is to have it say, no one has ascended into heaven, but rather there is one who has descended from heaven, the son of man. This is Jesus's term that he often uses for himself, this messianic term found in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and other places. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, there are no tourists in heaven. <laughs> there are none who have gone up there and come down, which actually is what many religions claim, you know, like Islam and Mormonism in effect. But Jesus instead is saying, even though there are no tourists in heaven, there is someone who is actually from there. <laughs> and to get this across, I think it's helpful to think, maybe if you're Canadian, you have traveled outside of Canada, and maybe you found yourself in a conversation with people who are talking about Canada, very strongly, with very strong convictions. Um, and, you know, and they say, well, I know what Canada's like because, you know, in middle school, yeah, we did a school trip there. <laughs> um, and you're there in the room as an actual Canadian, and maybe you're listening politely because you're Canadian, right? Um, but at some point you're hoping that they're going to ask you what Canada is like because you're from there. <laughs> that gives you an authority to speak. And Jesus is, in a sense, claiming this very thing that actually there is no one who has ascended and come down from heaven, but there is one who has come from there to begin with. Jesus, the son who has dwelt with the father and the spirit from eternity past. And if that's true, that would give him a kind of authority that is unmatched by any claim of any other religion that's out there. Um, I love how uh, Reverend Glenn Taylor a couple weeks back gave that, gave that illustration of Yuri Gagarin, that Soviet astronaut who went out into space and then in the Soviet news, it was reported that he had gone into space but didn't find God. Another interesting tidbit of that story is that C.S. Lewis was alive at the time, the British academic and author, and he wrote an op-ed in a London newspaper. And essentially he said, to look for God in outer space is as silly as going to a play and looking for Shakespeare in the rafters of the playhouse. <laughs> because if there is a God, Lewis was reasoning, the way that that God would relate to us in this world would be like the way an author relates to a story. And the only way we could know anything about what the author was like would be if the author actually wrote himself into the story and stepped onto the stage. And then in that case, that author could tell us, here's what the story is about. Here is how it's going to end. Here is your role within it. And that in effect is exactly what Jesus is claiming to be. And that's the basis of his authority. And it's affirmed and validated by the historical evidence that still stands up to scrutiny today for his resurrection as he had predicted. Lastly, we come to this final source of Jesus's authority. And that is the authority that Jesus has as our savior. Verse 14 tells us, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now to make sense of this, we need to know of the familiar episode to Nicodemus in the Old Testament in Numbers 21. And this is when 
God's people, Israelites, had been rescued miraculously from Egypt, where they were in slavery. God had miraculously parted the Red Sea. He had miraculously subdued some of the nations on the other side of the Red Sea to protect them. He had miraculously provided food and water for them. And yet still, they continue to be totally distrusting of God, accusing God of having brought them into the desert to kill them and complaining and grumbling about him. And God, in response to this repeated faithlessness, rightfully so, punishes them. And he punishes them by sending these serpents in their midst with lethal poison. And as they start to bite the Israelites and the Israelites begin to die, they call out to Moses and ask for Moses to intercede on their behalf. And Moses does this and he goes to God and God hears Moses and God extends mercy. He has Moses fashion a snake to put the snake on a pole and to lift the pole up in front of the Israelites. And when the Israelites look at the snake on the pole, they are healed, even those who have been bitten by these lethal deadly snakes. What Jesus is in a sense saying here is that this episode is being repeated in himself, but on a far grander scale. Instead of this being about a physical death, what this is about is a spiritual death, but both deaths are in fact the result of being under God's rightful punishment for the ways in which we have repeatedly been faithless in response to all of God's care and loving provision for us. We continue to distrust them and not to submit our lives to him. And yet, even in that condition of spiritual perishing, and right, that's now much more serious than just not being able to enter the kingdom or not seeing the kingdom. Those are still quite vague terms, but here Jesus paints in a more clear picture what it means to be in those positions, the position of spiritual darkness. It is in fact to be spiritually perishing and on our way to eternal death. And yet in that condition, Jesus says, the son of man will be lifted up. And that phrase lifted up in John is often associated with Jesus's ascension, with his resurrection, but most immediately with his death. Jesus here is demonstrating an awareness that he knew that he would be lifted up on a cross, much like a pole. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that here is how being born again actually happens. On the one hand, it's something that only God does. Only God can bring about that purification of the heart, the forgiveness of sins, the regeneration and a new heart to live for God. But here is how it happens. It happens when we, like the Israelites, see the state that we're in, to see our true condition, and when we look up to Jesus raised up on the cross as the only hope we have of getting out of it. And when we do this, Jesus is arguing, that is when we experience God bringing about new birth in us. When we look to Jesus as our only hope, that is what it means to be forgiven. We are forgiven in that moment. God gives us his spirit to live inside of us and to give us new desires to please him. Now, <laughs> It is a very narrow assessment that Jesus makes about what it means to be spiritual. It involves seeing your condition and looking to Jesus as the only one who can save you. And this seems on the one hand incredibly exclusive and yet Jesus here grounds it in the authority that comes from the fulfillment of scripture, from Jesus's descent actually coming from heaven, being God and the person of the son. But I said that this third source of Jesus's authority comes from his identity as our savior. And what I mean by that is this, I wanna share a story from a friend of mine um, named Vince, who told me about his father, how his father was diabetic for many years. Um, 
And as a result of his diabetes, he often was having to go to the hospital. And Vince tells the story that one day his father again had to go to the hospital and the whole family went with him. But when he arrived, the doctor looked at him quite quickly and then made quite a severe diagnosis. He said, well, right, we need to, we need to amputate a leg. And Vince said his whole family paused for a moment and asked for the doctor to leave so that they could discuss to see really were they gonna go through with this. It just seemed like such a dire diagnosis and it got them wondering whether the doctor really had their best interests in mind. Maybe this was just a quick fix. The doctor knew how many times they were having to come in. Here would be a way just to get them off their back. Um, perhaps the doctor wasn't actually, this diagnosis wasn't actually as true. It was maybe a, a shortcut. And Vince shared that what really would have changed their thinking in that moment is if maybe the doctor had realized this, this feeling they had, and had come up to them and said, you know, I understand how drastic this, this seems, but I really do believe your dad is in mortal peril. And I really believe that this surgery needs to go forward. And actually I've checked and we don't even have a blood match for your father for this surgery in light of the amount of blood he's gonna lose. But look, I am the match for that type of blood. And I am literally willing to go right now to give blood that your father could go through this surgery. And Vince said, if that had happened, he would have had a sense that this doctor really cared for them because of the cost that the doctor was willing to pay. And it would have led him to trust the authority of the diagnosis that was given. And that is exactly in a sense what Jesus is doing here. There is a kind of authority that he is affirming, not just as the one who's come down from heaven, but as the one who at such great cost to himself has made a way for us to be relieved from this dire situation that we are in. There is here an unexpected assessment, but it comes with an unparalleled source of authority. And lastly, I want to conclude by looking at just this famous verse here, verse 16, this unprecedented invitation. What we get a sense of in this verse, this famous verse, which many of you I imagine know, is actually a summary of everything that's come before. And we know this because it starts off by saying, for God so loved the world. And we tend to read that so in terms of that's how, how much God has loved the world. That's so greatly. But actually, and, and that's consistent with the sense of the, of the verse on the whole, but the word in that original language actually means in this way. And in the original language, that would always be referring to what had just come before this episode we've had with the snakes. So it's the sense that in which this is the explanatory gloss of what this whole story has meant. It means this, that God has so loved the world that the situation of us getting out of the situation of perishing and utter faithlessness is God intervening, God taking the first step of loving us before we had changed how we were behaving, before we had changed to have the right set of beliefs. God loved us. And we're told that God loved the world. And for Nicodemus, this would have been hard to accept. The Jews were God's special people, but that God would love the world. That would be quite a thing, apart from your race or ethnicity. It doesn't matter. God loved the whole world. But as one commentator has said, in reality, with the bigger picture of what's going on here, the most amazing thing is not how big the world is, but how bad it is. And yet this is the kind of world with people like you and me that God has loved. Again, there are lots of religions that talk about a God of love, but as author and pastor Tim Keller likes to say, the question is, how do you know? <laughs> How do you know that God really loves you? Someone can tell you they love you over and over, but unless you see that love in action, you can never know it's really there. 
And this is where the Christian faith, instead of just giving you words about God's love, gives you a story, a historical story. And at the heart of that story is a cross. For God so loved the world that he did something. He gave his only son, his only son. And that's language reminiscent of Abraham having to give up his only son. That would have been so painful. But in that case, God provided a substitute. But in this case, no substitute came. And why did God do this? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this word for life here, in the original language, there's a word for life that's the word bios, like the word biology, bios. And there's also this word zoe, where we get the name zoe. And the word for the bios word, that refers to the mechanics of life. But the word zoe refers to the vibrancy of life. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying here is, all these terms, right, overlap, seeing the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God. What's at the core of that is eternal life. It's life after death, but it is also life that involves the fullest satisfaction of all of our longings and all of our desires, the thing that we can maybe just get glimpses of in the best moments of this life. All of that satisfaction is to be found eternally in God. And that's something that Jesus says we can begin to experience now. <clears throat> So I just want to close here with two points of application. Um, the first is one I particularly want to, to offer for those of you who, who would not call yourselves Christians at this point. I think that the question that Jesus is asking us in this text is simply, do you believe? And we see here what it means to believe. On the one hand, it's something that only God can do. But on the other hand, the way that God does it is by opening our eyes to see the need that we are in, the way in which we're perishing outside of God's rescue, and yet the way in which through Jesus being lifted up on the cross, he has paid the penalty that we deserve so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be cleansed, and so that God can make our hearts new, that we actually desire then to live for him. And that is something that Jesus is saying, even this morning is a, is a journey that can begin when we look on Jesus the way that the Israelites did on that snake on the pole as the only hope that we have of getting out of the state that we're in. It's a drastic diagnosis. It totally is out of touch with the culture today. Jesus is saying the world is divided into two groups. There are those who look at Jesus as the only source of being saved from their moral uncleanliness. And there are those who do not and perish. There is no third option. But we see in this account of John, of Jesus's life, that Nicodemus, though he you know, uh, didn't always think this, um, by the end of the story, did come to believe in Jesus in this way. When Jesus is finally lifted up, and maybe it's significant that it only happened at that moment when Nicodemus saw that God didn't just love the world through Jesus, but that God loved him. Nicodemus identified with Jesus and publicly went with Joseph of Arimathea to take the body down to prepare it for burial. Jesus, uh, Nicodemus identified with Jesus. He believed in him. That is something that can begin even now. But for Christians, I think there are a few points of application we can take from this. I want to just return to that question from the beginning. What to you does it mean to be a Christian? Or what does it mean to be a good Christian? Or what does it mean to be close to God or doing well with God? How would you answer that? There's a pastor in London, England years ago who used to ask his members of his church from time to time, are you a Christian? And often the answer he would get is, well, I'm doing my best. I hope so. I think I am. 
Um, and whenever he would hear that answer, he would sit down with the person and say, I don't think you understand what it means to be a Christian in the first place. Because being a Christian doesn't involve certain things that we are doing, first and foremost. It ultimately involves something that God has done in us. It involves God having, by dying on the cross, once and for all, forgiven all of our sins. The ones from the past, the ones from that time when we were really feeling God and then we really confessed and really, you know, that moment we began our faith with God and the ones that have come since, maybe in a time of dryness and the sins that all will be committed in the future. All of those got paid for because Jesus only died once. On top of that though, to be a Christian means that God has done this work of renewal in you. That even if you feel far from God, even if you don't sense his presence, even if you repeatedly struggle with the same old faithlessness, God has not abandoned you. He has given you a new spirit. And he will finish the work that he has started. Even the same struggles that last over and over and never seem to change. God here, by giving us his spirit, is saying, I will not give up on you. And the way you are now need not be the way and will not be the way you will one day be. So I wonder how you feel about what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, we've been looking in the book of Hebrews at what does it mean to have endurance in our faith? We've looked at how Jesus intercedes on behalf of us. And we are to think about that reality that he is in the heavenly places before God the Father. And in light of that spiritual reality, we are to approach his throne of grace, to receive mercy, no matter how faithless we have been, even as Christians, there is still mercy. But then also to find grace to help in time of need. No matter what difficult season we're in, God's invitation for us is always to come, to come and receive what we need to meet what he has before us. What does it mean for you to be a good Christian? Next, what is, um, are we sharing this message with others? Uh, C.S. Lewis has said, you know, when we truly find something wonderful, we will have a desire to share it with others. Do we feel that way about this message? Or have we maybe lost some of the wonder that we had? If that's the case, this reading we had from Romans today reminded us that actually we can always cry out for more, more of the spirit. And the spirit's role, right, is to give us this new heart that loves God. And if we've lost that wonder, just as Jesus as our advocate is pointing to the cross to intercede to the Father, so also the spirit, which is called another advocate, plays the role of pointing to the cross to make that case that God loves us, not to the Father, but to our own hearts. And we can ask for more of that when we've lost the wonder that we know we once had. And God will give that to us because his spirit is in us. And thirdly, out of four, almost done here, what are we trusting in when we share our faith with others? I think often Christians can get become a Christian and then they start to share their faith with everyone and then they find not everyone becomes a Christian or they feel they just really blew it. They didn't explain it well when they were asked questions. But what this tells us is that actually becoming a Christian, this is something that only God can do. And in effect, what that does is it frees us. It frees us to take risks as we share our faith because it ultimately does not depend on our perfect wording of presenting the gospel to someone else. Um, this is a work that only God can do. It also brings us ultimately to pray for people, to not rely so much on our perfect evangelistic presentation, but actually to go to the only one who truly can turn hearts and to not give up to continue to bring those people before God. And finally, lastly, I think a question this passage gets us thinking about is how is our humility doing? 
Ours is a culture right now that says you need to look down on the people who are of other political persuasions from you, who have different views about COVID-19 than you, different views on vaccines than you. There are all these people that we can look down on. Um, but it is not so from Jesus's point of view. The only reason you're right with God if you're a Christian is that Jesus has seen the state you're in before anything has changed in your life. and He's had mercy on you at the greatest cost. And that's only that kind of conviction can make us into humble people. He humbled himself, Jesus on the cross, and it led to his death so that when we humble ourselves, it is now the path that leads to enjoying and experiencing eternal Zoe life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.